Uh, let's pray real briefly. Father, uh, guide us today. You have a lot to say to us. Help me not to get in the way. Lord, make us what you need us to be, what you've called us to be, what you've commanded us to be. Move in our hearts. Turn the stone to flesh that we would receive from your spirit today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We live in an angry world. Amen. It's not that shocking. It's not like I'm giving you some brilliant revelation here. You see it all the time. It's all around us. It's in us. As Christians, we get a lot of mixed messages about anger. We tend to live in these extremes. Many uh, over the, really over the centuries, we've seen this. Uh, many have taught that Christians are never to have anger. In fact, some even go so far as to act as if we should never have any emotions at all. You know, a Jedi doesn't feel kind of thing, which is weird, by the way. So all you Star Wars fans, how weird is it that you're not supposed to have any emotions and yet at the same time trust your feeling? I'm not sure how that works. Anyhow, coming back to reality, uh, while some teach that we're not supposed to have any anger, we're not supposed to have any emotions, others uh, embrace the philosophies of secularism and the social sciences and variously end up teaching to embrace and vent our anger or to manage and suppress our anger. And we go back and forth. In any case, uh, we have to recognize that anger is a universal emotion. It's universal. Regardless of what we do with it, everyone feels it, without exception. Now, anger is a very complex and very powerful thing. Martin Luther felt that he never preached or wrote without anger, his, his best stuff in his mind. He preached best and most truthfully when he was angry. Yet at the same time, angry preaching has often led to excess, to abuse, and to false doctrines. The same feeling that can drive us to fight against injustice, to stand up for the vulnerable and oppressed, and defend the truth of God's word can also lead us into horrific acts, from slander to bullying to violence and murder. Maybe it'll help us to understand anger a little bit better if we think of it like fire. And if you're a guy, you're thinking, oh, fire, got my attention, yeah. Guys like fire, oh yeah. Think about fire is, uh, it's something powerful to be handled with care and wisdom so that it produces positive rather than negative results. Helpful rather than destructive results. Countless lives have been saved and extended because fire allows us to produce heat when we would freeze, to cook food and, and kill, uh, kill deadly bacteria in the process. And yet we know also that lives are lost to fire regularly. We've seen this just recently in fatalities all around us. 
like so many things, fire and anger both make wonderful servants, but horrible masters. We need to make sure that we get this in our minds. It's exactly what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. That's the core reality of what he's talking about. The core reality is this, letting anger drive puts the devil behind the wheel. Let me say it again so we get it. Letting anger drive puts the devil behind the wheel. As Paul said it in, in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, <clears throat> in your anger, do not sin. If you have a King James Version or, or another translation, it may say, be angry and do not sin. I was surprised to see how many folks have, in various commentaries and preaching have made that as if it were a command. When Paul says be angry and don't, do not sin, it's an acknowledgement. It's not a command. He's not saying you need to go be angry. He's saying go ahead and be angry. Anger happens. He's acknowledging it. There's a concession aspect. Be angry, but in your anger, do not sin. And he's quoting Psalm 4, as Gary read for us earlier today. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now again, we see folks take that very literally. When Paul is saying, don't let the sun go down on your, on your anger, he's not speaking literally. That's not a bad thing to do. His point is, don't let it hang around. Don't sit on it. Don't let it stew in you. Get rid of that anger before you move on to the next day, before you move on to the next thing. Deal with it. Deal with it frankly, directly, so that it doesn't eat you alive. I think most of us have had a splinter at some, at some time in our skin that we couldn't get out, and it festers and gets sore and swells and maybe gets infected. Anger does that in our lives. Get it out as soon as you can. In that sense, it's a lot like cancer. Early detection is the key. Remove it. Deal with it. Because if you don't, it'll kill you. Paul is very clear in this. In your anger, do not sin. Don't give the, the devil a, a foothold in your life. In Genesis 4, uh, as we saw Cain and and Lamech, sometimes that, that little piece about Lamech gets overlooked. We don't teach that in Sunday school, flannel, flannel graph lessons very often. But as we're watching this play out, we see the growth of sin. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. We all know the story. They eat the fruit, serpent, curse, all that stuff. Genesis 4, the story we're familiar with, is Cain and Abel. Cain offers a sacrifice that God doesn't accept. Abel offers a sacrifice that God does accept. I hear a lot of people talking about why. It doesn't tell us why. Anything beyond that is speculation. Why isn't the point. The point is sin, growing, expanding. We're no longer just eating a fruit as if disobeying the God of creation was a just kind of thing, a merely sort of thing. It wasn't about the fruit then. It was about the disobedience. 
But the manifestation of sin, as it grows in us, when we are separated from the giver of life, when we are separated from the only just one, then the injustice that comes out of us from the sin that is inside of us has expanding impact. So now, it's not the fruit, it's Cain killing his brother because he's angry with him. He's jealous. All the feelings that go along with this anger have now taken control and he lashes out and he kills his brother. God calls him on it. And he curses him. And as he casts him out, and he no longer is able to make a living from the soil the way he has, he's going to be a wanderer on the earth. Interestingly, he's a wanderer, and yet in the very same chapter we see that he's building a city. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that he's not in one place physically. But his soul is wandering. His, His personage is wandering Perhaps he builds several cities in his physical wandering. But we know here, he builds a city, he builds a family. Notice that Cain is stressed out because, Lord, your punishment is too much for me. I can't handle it. Anybody who sees me is going to kill me. And God says, I will avenge Cain seven times, sevenfold. The vengeance of God in protecting Cain is a complete, full vengeance. Cain doesn't need to worry about protecting himself. God will protect him. God curses him, and yet in his mercy, God is good to Cain even then. But Cain's family line follows in his footsteps. And when we get down the line to Lamech, he's actually bragging about murdering someone. He's bragging about his vengeance, his revenge killing. And he basically declares his independence from God, asserting that he will handle his own business. He will be the great hero of justice and avenger of wrongs. Don't miss his statement about Cain being avenged sevenfold. You may have heard that as a band name once upon a time. That God will avenge Cain sevenfold, but God's not good enough. I'll be avenged 77 times. My vengeance is better than God's vengeance. He's declaring his independence of God, and he's boasting about it. This is what happens When sin takes hold, when anger stays in us and festers, and we give it control, we let it drive, the devil gets a hold of us. Remember what God said to Cain? He said, sin is crouching at your door. The devil wants you. He's just waiting for you to let him control you, but you've got to rule over this. You have to assert the dominion that God created you for as kings and queens in his kingdom. He's the ruler. We rule 
as stewards under him. But if we fail to master our passions, if we fail to master our own flesh, you better believe sin's taken over. If we let anger drive, the devil gets behind the wheel. Now, don't miss either that Jesus reverses this same story, a little bit of biblical theology for those of you who have been following our our Wednesday night Bible study. What we see here is reversed in Matthew 18. Turn there if you would real quickly. In Matthew 18, you may remember this story as well. Starting with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? This fullness, this completed number here. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Does that sound familiar? You hear the echoes of Lamech? Jesus in his perfect character, is describing to Peter what it looks like to follow him, to reflect his character. If I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm not going to be like Lamech. I'm not going to be like Cain and let anger and sin take over. Instead, I'm going to rule over this. My character will not be dominated by this anger not if i'm reflecting christ and he says to peter in exact reversal of what lamech says lamech says god's gonna avenge cain seven times i'm gonna avenge myself 77 times peter says lord would i be super holy if i forgive seven times seems like it i'm not really great with one time right you get seven times you're better than me jesus says you're not quite catching it. Just the opposite of Lamech. In Christ, we forgive 77 or 70 times 7, as your translation may render it. This is a big deal. If we're going to get this, we're going to look at three things here, just as we did last week and we will in the following weeks. We're going to take a look at reflecting the reality of Christ. We'll talk a little bit about how Christians can give the devil a foothold in our anger so that we can deal with that. And then we'll talk about what it looks like to put on the new self, putting on a life that fits. Let's start by talking about reflecting the reality of Christ. Notice this. The character of Christ is not ruled by his anger. The anger of Christ is ruled by his character. I'm going to say that again, let it sink in, hopefully you're writing it down. The character of Christ is not ruled by his anger, the anger of Christ is ruled by his character. We're not going to take the time to look at these things because you know these stories already. There are several places where we see Jesus express anger, most notably when he enters the temple. And God is being defamed in what God has established as a house of prayer for all nations, and instead, <clears throat> excuse me, his own people 
That, that has to be the, the dagger to the heart for the Lord. It's not the Gentiles doing these horrible things right now. It's his own people, the Jews, who are serving as money changers, profiteers, doing business in what is supposed to be a house of prayer, but not just doing business. They're, it's kind of like the housing market around here. They're, they're price gouging, right? If you go to a restaurant in Three Oaks, you know that you're going to pay more than you're going to pay anywhere else, right? New Buffalo, any place around here, because you've got the tourist crowd. So let's jack up the prices a little bit. You go to Niles or someplace more inland, you, you're going to pay a little less probably. Why? Because there's the market for it. They turned God's holy temple into a market where supply and demand drives the prices of the sacrifices that God had already given specific prices to. And Jesus was furious. Not because there was a wrong against him, but because God's name was being profaned in this way. Because injustice was being done to the poor in this way. This is a righteous indignation, as we may often term it. So Jesus is angry, and he acts in his anger, so much so that, that what we might even term violence comes out as he overturns the tables. He disrupts the business, and he chases them out with whips. I don't know whether he actually struck them or chased them. I don't think that's the point. The point is he got angry, and yet... Jesus was without sin. His character ruled over, dominated, directed, governed, guided his anger. At no point did Jesus stop being the perfect picture of love and grace. Instead, he was the fullness of both grace and and truth. And in this moment, his anger burned so that he would defend truth. His zeal for the Lord brought him to this place. Now we see that picture throughout the Psalms in the Old Testament, that the man of God stands up in anger against the wicked, not in hatred of the wicked, but in defense of God and his people. David even goes so far as to say, Lord, do I not hate those who hate you? There is a holy hatred there, if you will. It's different than how we normally picture hatred, but he says, the wicked shall not stand, and I will not rest while they defile your name. There's a good part of that. Jesus never indulges the sinful aspect of it. If we're going to reflect the character of Christ, then in the same way, we must not be ruled by anger, <clears throat> rather our character, or more specifically, Christ's character in us must rule our anger. <clears throat> Matthew Henry said in his commentary, if we would be angry and not sin, 
we must be angry at nothing but sin. I'm going to read that again because for some of you, I want you to have the chance to write it down. I know some of you like to take these extra notes down. Matthew Henry said, If we would be angry and not sin, we must be angry at nothing but sin. God's anger is never sinful. Sometimes that'll come up in a Bible study. Why is it okay that God has wrath? Why is that not sinful when our anger is sinful? And I need to point out very clearly and specifically, our anger is not always sinful. <laughs> but it usually is. <laughs> James 1, 19 to 21, we see this clear picture that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It doesn't say don't be angry, but don't jump on the gas pedal real quick. You need, to, you need to keep your foot on the clutch and the brake for a minute. Don't jump to anger. Why? Because human anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Human anger is rooted in the flesh, my pride, my, my understandings, my passions, the things that get me fired up. God's anger is different. God's anger is always just, always holy, always perfect, never selfish, because God is incapable of selfishness, although what God primarily promotes is His own glory, because that is right. When you and I promote our own glory, it is not, because we are the creation, not the creator. God is never sinful in his anger because he is perfectly holy. There is no sin in God. 1 John 1.5 tells us that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. James 1.13 points out that God is not tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else. There's no, no place that the devil can get a foothold in God. There is no sin. There's no gap. There's no hole. Now, we think of the term foothold. Maybe, uh, maybe the picture of rock climbing can be helpful. When you're trying to, to get a, a place to, to set your foot, kind of stick your toe into a crack that you can drive yourself up. Or maybe the picture of, of a tug of war can be helpful. Most of us here have been engaged in that or, or at least watched it. And one of the things that can really help is when you get enough of a pause to, to dig your foot in, to get that spot where you can gain some traction to use your power. That's what the devil is trying to do in us. To find a spot in our lives where he can get, him, get himself a little hold in a crack. To gain a little traction so that he can assert his power over us. In God, there's no gap. There's no place for the devil to get traction because God has no sin. I don't want to confuse you and make you think that there's some equivalence between God and the devil. They are not equivalent. Not in any way. But in us, boy, we got lots of gaps, don't we? God's wrath is always perfectly just. Jesus got angry, but he never sinned because he was always perfectly aligned with and ruled by God's will. He was never ruled by the passions of the flesh. I cannot say the same thing, nor can you. 
Therefore, when we think our anger is perfectly just, even in our most just moments, that's probably not true. Because it's tainted by our personal sin nature. We need to be aware of that. The character of Christ is not ruled by His anger. The anger of Christ is ruled by His character. We need to recognize that as we are seeking to reflect the reality of Christ. Notice this, God intends to love through His church. God intends to love through His church. The church is the reflection of Christ as we are doing His bidding as His ambassadors. If you are a Christ follower, then you represent Him in this world. You may notice that love is capitalized and you have some blanks there to fill in. A little acronym for you. Let others view eternity. Let others view eternity. God intends to let others view eternity through His church. That's what we're here for. God is using you and me as the church, the body of Christ built together, living stones to form a single temple in which God manifests Himself so that others can see Him. God intends to let others view eternity through His church. We are the ambassadors of God's kingdom, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Others get to see and know the eternal reality of God through us. It is our mission and purpose to reflect the reality of Christ through the relationships, good, bad, and ugly, in which God chooses to place us. Sometimes when we think about reflecting God's, God's love and the reality of Christ, through our relationships, we think about the people that we're close to. I have a relationship with my wife. I want to reflect the reality of Christ in that relationship. I have a relationship with my children, with you, with my, my close friends, my brothers and sisters here. But those aren't the only relationships that I have. I have a relationship with that person that I might see as an enemy. That person who wants to harm me, to slander me, to persecute me, to do wrong to me. That's a relationship too, just not a fun one. And I have to reflect the reality of Christ in that relationship as well. In Nazi Germany, every Christian had to deal with an ugly relationship to the state because the state had become completely wicked. And in that relationship, they still had to reflect the reality of Christ, to demonstrate His character in the fullness of love and truth. And in that particular setting, far too often, the answer was to capitulate. We just need to submit to authority and not stand up for truth. And we see what happened. Hitler created his own state church. Eventually, when Christians had had enough and said, whoa, wait a minute, this is a bridge too far. We cannot. We must not. We must stand. They did. And it was too late. 
There was always a balance that must be found. And balance is probably the wrong word, but I use it because it's what comes to my mind. Maybe fullness is better. Because if we're going to reflect the reality of Christ, there is full grace and full truth. This is why Jesus loved so much that he willingly died for his enemies. Because that's what we were. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't his children. We were in opposition to God. We weren't seeking him. We weren't wanting to be better. And yet he loved us so much that in that state, while we were his enemies, dead in our sins, and by nature objects of wrath, God sent his son because he so loved the world. Jesus is always that love, and it never changes. And yet at the same time, Jesus is the judge in Revelation before whom the living and the dead will come and will receive their eternal reward. Some will be judged and sent to an eternity separated from God. And the church will be judged innocent because Christ has already paid the penalty. Jesus is both grace and truth. Christ followers need to reflect Him in that way. Grace and truth. But God's purpose for us here is to let others view eternity through Christ's body, the church. We love because it is God's character. Perfectly displayed for us in Christ. We love our enemies. We love those who persecute us. And yes, I recognize that we don't. But in Christ, we must. It's not optional. If you claim to be in Christ, if you have tasted the grace of God, then you cannot harbor bitterness and anger toward those who persecute you. Jesus said, love them. Pray for them. Do good to them. And my flesh says, well, that stinks. I don't want to, Jesus. That's a terrible idea. And I spin it a lot of different ways. And I say, well, but if I don't, they're going to think it's okay. And I justify the hatred in my heart. All the while, Jesus says calmly, nope, love them. Do good to them. Pray for them. Is that going to fix it, Jesus? Is that going to make them better to me? Nope. They're going to kick you in the teeth. Do it anyway. Because you're not here for you. You're here to represent me. God intends to let others view eternity through his church. We are to display his love for the world. We love because it's God's character perfectly displayed for us in Christ, which we are to display for the world. 
they will know that we are his disciples by our what? Say it a little louder. Not by our anger. Not even by our holiness. Now our holiness is endemic to being in Christ. That's true. But the world's not going to look on our righteousness and say, oh yeah, they belong to Jesus. Jesus in John 13, 34 and 35 says, they'll know that you're my disciples by your, say it again, love. God intends to let others view eternity through His church. However, the devil is working overtime to wreck that reflection, to destroy our mission. He's constantly looking for a way in, an advantage, a foothold. Any and every opportunity he can get to get a foothold in your life, he's going to work that angle. Why do you think there's so much anger? Why do you think there are so many good reasons to get angry? Right now, without even trying, you could probably come up with four, five, six, maybe more of a list of reasons that you have been angry this week with good reason. Because somebody out there is just a jerk. Maybe it's even somebody in your own home. Probably the biggest jerk is the guy in the mirror. There are lots of reasons to get angry. And the devil's really good at his deceptions. And so like every good liar, he uses some truth in it. And since we are all sinful people and we all do things that are worthy of someone getting angry, he will come up with lots of opportunities for you to be angry at me and me to be angry at you. And we fuel it back and forth. It's not a game. It's a battle. And it's not an accident, it's his strategy. So if this is the case, then, then how is it, how, how do Christians give the devil a foothold in our anger? What can we do that's going to put us in this bad situation? When we know that, then we can avoid it. This is what Paul's talking about. In your anger, don't sin. You're going to be angry. Okay, go ahead, be angry. But be angry like Christ. Be angry for God's reasons and do it with God's methods. In your anger, don't sin. Because when you do, you give the devil a foothold. How do we do this? First, and there are as many different symptoms, as many different things as, as there are human thoughts. General categories. First, we hold on to it. We hold on to it. Since I haven't had you turn to Ephesians 4 yet, let's go ahead and get there. You want to see this verse. Verse 26. In your anger do not sin. The very first thing he says after quoting Psalm 4, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Now this is not exactly the, the literal idea of, you know, hey, sun's going down, you better really quick get on this, get this right. It's before the sun starts going down. You need to have in your mind that I'm not letting anger settle in. If I go to bed angry and I wake up angry the next day and I'm still angry at lunchtime and then by the weekend I'm angry and come Christmas I'm angry and 30 years down the road I'm still angry. I've got this bitterness in me. It affects everything. 
And anger doesn't naturally just go away. As long as there's something for it to consume, it will live. It's a bit like fire that way. If you hold on to it too long, you're going to get burned. Don't let the sun go down on the anger. Don't stay angry too long. It's like holding a match. Most of us have probably done that, right? You, you let it burn, trying to light those birthday candles, like my sister and Maisie who cannot light birthday candles to save their lives. That's just a great opportunity for me to mock them, so I want to do that publicly. Cannot light. I mean, it's birthday candles, man. But we're watching, and we're laughing, and we're saying, Heidi, 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 you're going to bring your hand. Heidi, you're going to bring your hand. And then, okay, this has nothing to do with the sermon. This is just because I think it's hilarious. Then she tries to light it from the other side, but she reaches over the lit candle. I love my sister, but come on, man. There's a reason she doesn't like to have candles in her house, because fire is dangerous, and some people are not good at it. If you hold on to that fire too long, you hold on to that match, you're going to get burned. If you hold on to a torch and you let it burn down, you're going to get burned. Keep your hand in the fire long enough. Damage inevitably will be done. Fire burns. Anger burns. This time of year in our area, we see a lot of ticks, especially this year. They're really high this year. Anger gets like that. It gets embedded. If you've had a tick bite, you know they kind of bury their head in there, right? It's disgusting. And if you try to pull them out, it leaves something behind. Often Lyme disease. Right? My sister's losing it up front here. Why in the world would I pick such a disgusting picture? Because that's what happens when we hold on to anger too long. It gets embedded in us. And then when we try to remove it, it leaves something behind. And that something is deadly. And it has a long-term effect. Lyme disease isn't something you take a pill for and it goes away. It can affect you for a lifetime. Don't let anger do that in your life. Don't hold on to it. How many of you remember an old movie <laughs> from, I think, the 90s with Richard Dreyfus and Bill Murray called What About Bob? Anybody see that movie, right? Anger is a little bit like Bob. It's going to hang around until you lose your mind. It's like a squatter who stays on your land. You, you let them there as a guest, but then they don't leave until they start thinking it's theirs, and they start calling the shots, and they take over until it's like you don't even own it at all. Anger is that squatter, that guest that you let stay too long and it takes over. We hold on to it and we give the devil a foothold that way. We harbor bitterness and resentment. We don't forgive. Well, they're not sorry. When they change, I'll forgive them. When they apologize... Sincerely, it has to be an acceptable apology on my terms, then I'll forgive them. When they make it right, then I'll forgive them. Guess what? They're not going to. 
It ain't going to happen. Stop hoping for it. The longer you hold on to that bitterness, that unforgiveness, it's, it's like drinking poison and thinking the other person's going to die. It's not how it works. Or as you heard earlier in the song, it's locking up a prisoner. That prisoner is me. Forgiveness is not connected to their repentance. Forgiveness is an act that I choose. I get to let you off my hook. And I'm going to let God handle it. I'm going to entrust you to God's justice, however He handles it. But as long as I hang on to that, because there's a debt that you have to pay, as long as I hold on to that, and I keep you on my hook, I'm hooked to you. And you have control over me. Anger is a dangerous thing when we harbor bitterness and resentment. We have to unlock that, that prison with the key of forgiveness. Because if we don't, we are the ones who suffer. Leprosy was a big deal in the Bible. We are able to manage it with modern medicine, but it was a picture of sin in the Bible. And particularly, I think it's a good picture related to that bitterness and resentment that we hold on to. In Leviticus, the, the skin diseases uh, that are referred to as leprosy in most of our translations, God establishes specific laws that are beneficial to Israel for their health, but it's a picture of a spiritual sickness, of sin. The same is true very often in how it's depicted for us in the New Testament. And if we think of it in terms of anger, hopefully it'll help us see how this bitterness and resentment works. Leprosy is a slow-growing disease. And it gradually, not, not all at once, it gradually attacks the nervous system until over time, Eventually, it destroys your ability to feel. And when you stop being able to feel, a lot of damage gets done. I don't feel pain. Pain's a good warning system for me. And things don't function right when I lose that ability to feel, and sores and lesions appear on the skin. And eventually, that internal slow-growing disease that keeps me from feeling rots away an otherwise healthy body to the point where we can lose extremities. Bitterness and resentment kill our ability to love, kill our ability to feel sympathy and empathy, kill our ability to give grace, mercy, compassion, we can't reflect the reality of Christ without those things. Don't hold on to it. Don't let the sun go down. you got to deal with it. Because if you don't, the devil gets a foothold in your life. If you let that anger drive, you let that, that bitterness and resentment stay there, you're giving the devil the wheel. Secondly, not only do we hold on to it, but we let it distract us. We let it distract us. We pay too much attention 
to the things that make us angry. We just we give it too much weight in our lives. And as we're focused on it, and, and this can be good or bad anger. It does, doesn't matter if it's my anger because you know you blocked my goal and, and irritated me, or it's my anger because of the injustice and sin in the world. In either case, when I get so focused on that issue, then that anger distracts me from my mission in life. It distracts me from my call to love. And I fail to let others view eternity through me by reflecting the reality of Christ because I'm so focused on that thing that causes me anger. I can get so caught up in social justice issues that I miss out on the gospel. I can be so passionate about fighting racism or human trafficking or alcoholism or gambling. Pick a cause. People get angry and passionate about their causes. And in the process, we forget that God did not call us to fix society. He called us to represent Him in the world, to be His witnesses so that people who are dead in sin can find Christ and be made alive by His grace. Now, the society gets fixed as we begin to live like Christ. The more I try to fix it with more anger and the passionate hatred of the wrong, the more damage I do and the less love I show. We let it distract us. We let it cause us to forget who we are and why we're here. If you're still in Ephesians, take a look at at verse 1. We've seen this before. We've talked about it for several weeks. We'll keep talking about it for several more. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to do what? To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You're not gaining points with God by handling your anger. But when you have received the calling of a child of God, chosen, adopted, predestined to be sanctified, set apart for Him, when you have been saved by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, but by God's grace, then you have a different call in life. You're to be His ambassadors. We need to remember that we are children of God. We need to live like children of God. We have a purpose. Now we represent Daddy. Anger distracts us from that. It also distracts us so that we forget who we were and how we were saved. Not only do I forget who I am in Christ and forget what I'm here to do as His ambassador, I forget that that person that made me mad because of their sin, I'm not better. I was just like that. Maybe the details are different, but my heart was far from God. My sin made me dead. 
and I was saved by grace, made alive in Christ. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, since we're nice and close there. Start at the very beginning of chapter 2. Paul says, as for you, he's talking to the church, right? He's talking to these Christians, these saints of God in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And he says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's who you were. That's what you did. You lived under Satan's rule. He dominated you whether you knew it or not. He goes on in verse 3, All of us, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, dead, ruled by the devil, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, In other words, pursuing our own passion, our own understanding, doing what felt right, doing the natural thing. That's what we did when we were dead. We lived just like the world, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now listen, if I'm going to remember that, it makes it a lot harder for me to be angry with someone else but the anger distracts me and keeps me from remembering that in myself, I'm a dirtbag sinner too. And the only reason that I have any hope, any true morality, any true justice, any true love is because Jesus died in my place and he made me alive when I was dead. That's it. It's my only hope. I got nothing else. We, let, we hold on to it. We let it distract us. Third, we give it control. We give it control. We let this anger drive. Just as, as he described for us in Ephesians 2, we let worldly passions control us. We let our emotions control us. The devil loves to use your emotions. Emotions are really good thermostats. No. That's the exact opposite of what I'm trying to say. They're really good thermometers. They can give a temperature reading. They can tell us what it's like in my spiritual room, in my inner being. When something is wrong, they're like the indicator light on your dashboard. It'll tell you that something's not right. But you may not know what to do about it, right? The wrong thing to do about it is to put tape over that indicator light so that you don't see it. And you keep driving until you ruin your car. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The other extreme, the indiscriminate expression of my emotions, when this anger gets a hold of me and I I just let it control me and I lash out and I, I, I just rage. Some of you know what that feels like too. Some of you know what it's like to be on the other end of that. I'm guessing all of us have been one or the other at various times. That's like I see that indicator light and I take a hammer and I smash it. Stupid light. It didn't fix anything. The light's not blinking, but it's a really, really bad decision. And the car's still wrecked. Or I can not let my emotions drive. And I can do something about what I see from that indicator light. Anger, 
all of our emotions, good thermometers, but they're really bad thermostats. They're not good at making the change. They don't get it right. Understand that, that there is a role for emotion in our lives, but it's not to drive. Don't give it control. We let worldly passions control us. The devil works really hard to regain the control he once had in our lives by getting us to indulge our worldly passions, the cravings of our flesh, our feelings and urges, the dominance of that old man who we used to be before we were in Christ. Remember what he said, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Giving vent to our anger, let's just be real upfront about this, it feels good. It feels good. That's why sometimes secular psychologists will encourage different ways for you to vent that anger, screaming in your pillow, pounding some inanimate object, and so on. And that's fine for a moment, but it doesn't do anything to change what's going on inside. In fact, I would contend that if we see the whole picture, it actually encourages us to give vent to our anger. And in the moment, we might find a healthier or a more neutral way to vent that anger, but it doesn't change who's in control. Sin always feels good in the moment. If it didn't, it wouldn't really be temptation, would it? Right? If it felt bad, nobody'd want to do it. If getting angry didn't have some momentary benefit that gave us pleasure and relieved our pain, then nobody would be angry and act out. But we do because it does. Giving vent to our anger feels good, but ultimately it can't satisfy. It does for a moment, and then later we've got to vent it again. We've got to vent it again. We've got to vent it again. And it has a tendency, like so many things, to escalate, to go farther, to promise what it's never going to deliver, and demand what we're never going to be able to fully pay. It takes us farther than we want to go, and it keeps us there longer than we want to be there. Anger, when we let it control us, can't ultimately satisfy us. It's insatiable like fire. If you just ignore fire, it's going to consume anything that is in its path. That which is consumable will be consumed, and fire never stops looking for more things to burn. Ask anybody who lives in California, right? We have to take measures to control it. In the same way, we have to recognize that our anger, if we just give it its head, is insatiable. When we give control to our passions and our human understanding, this these fleshly cravings, as we see it, are innately selfish. That's the nature of it. It's going to seek release so that we have the pain relieved and get that momentary pleasure. But what that type of thing cannot do is it cannot love. 
Love goes beyond the self. I might be able to use my anger to fight against injustice, but I can't love with that anger. Love is something different. Love requires sacrifice. I have to keep it in check. We lash out, we retaliate, we slander. We seek ill for that other person. We revel in their suffering. These are sinful expressions of our anger. Lastly, we make it an idol. We make it an idol. We hold on to it. We let it distract us. We give it control. And we make it an idol. Really, anytime we have an idol before God, what we're really doing is worshiping our own understanding at the expense of reality. Think about it. We exalt an idol above the living and true God, whatever that might be. In this case, we're talking about anger, something that consumes us, something that is worshipped because we put it first and we do whatever it takes to please and appease it. But what we're really doing is pleasing our own understanding. We're trusting ourselves rather than trusting God. We're putting our stock in what we see, in what we understand. We're putting our, our hope in our ability to comprehend what is right and what is best. Rather than trusting God with our whole heart. We fail to trust God to handle this. In Romans 12, Paul tells us that we need to leave room for God's vengeance because God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. When we do this, when we make it an idol, we tend to seek revenge. We tend to justify our, our pride, our sinful pride. We call it indignation and justice. And sometimes it is, or at least it starts there, and then we hold on to it too long and we let it control us. We let it distract us from our mission. And what started out as righteous indignation becomes sinful pride. And in the end, though we would never admit it to ourselves and we usually don't know it, we ultimately love the anger more than we love God. We need to examine ourselves. Is anger an idol in your life? I look around this room and I see a lot of people who have been burned and hurt. Lots of us in this room have been divorced, betrayed, abandoned, mistreated, slandered, defamed, wrongfully terminated, treated unfairly. We've struggled and fought for custody of our children and we feel like we don't get a fair shake. 
We see people around us get raises and, and we don't get the raise that we think we deserve because somebody else took credit for our work. And we feel justified. I can't let go of this anger. And it can stay with us for a lifetime. That no longer fits who we are in Christ. That belonged to our flesh, to our humanness. But God has not called us to the natural, rather to the supernatural, to go beyond who we were to reflect who He is because He's given us a new nature and a new identity in Christ. Therefore, we need to put on the new self. So how do we do that? Putting on a, a life that fits involves at least these three things when we're talking about ang anger. First off, I have to remember the mercy that I have received. Remember the mercy I've received. I won't spend a lot of time talking about it, but I would like to read for you from Matthew 18. I'd invite you to turn there. We were there earlier. Let's go a little farther this time. Matthew 18, starting with verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, depending on your rendering. Verse 23, therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to, <clears throat> excuse me, as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold, that's a lot of money in case you're not sure. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. That was how it was done. It was like we often can think of debtor's prison in Dickensian England. Okay, so this was similar to that, not prison, but a debtor's slavery. Verse 26, at this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. 10,000 bags of gold? I don't think so. How are you going to do that? That's an unpayable debt. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, right now, you should be connecting this already okay i get it the master is like god right and i have this unpayable debt of sin before god and and i want to try to pay it back with my morality i'm going to try to do good deeds there's no chance i'm ever going to pay that back but the merciful god who is rich in love and abounding in mercy canceled my debt in Christ. Okay, I get it. Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Ten thousand bags of gold, a hundred silver coins. It's a real debt. He actually really owes him this, these hundred silver coins. That's not small. That's, that's legit, right? Sure doesn't seem to compare to 10,000 bags of gold. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. 
His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Jesus is saying, hey, let let go of all this stuff that you have against somebody else. They may have literally wronged you. They may have a a legitimate debt to you in this injustice of life. You may actually have a beef. Let it go. Because I forgave you for so much more. But notice how he ends this. It's not just casual, inspirational advice. There's a warning here in verse 35. This, what the master does at the end, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you, each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Remember the mercy I've received. Secondly, trust God to handle it perfectly. Trust God to handle it perfectly. In Numbers 14, 18, you don't have to look that up. I I would like you to, but you can do that for your homework. Numbers 14, 18, we're told that God is abounding in love. He's compassionate. But He does not let the just go unpunished. He's both. He's loving, compassionate. His mercy is why we're here. He doesn't hold our sins against us when He can and He should, but He gives us this canceled debt. Christ paid the payment for us. God does not let the, just, the unjust go unpunished. The wrongdoer, the criminal, will pay the debt. The only opportunity for that debt to be forgiven is for someone else to pay it. That's the grace of God in Christ. But I can trust that God's going to handle it. Turn, if you would, to Romans 12. I mentioned it earlier. I want to read it for you. Romans 12, starting with verse 17. This is kind of the fallout of living as... uh, as a living sacrifice before God. Starting with verse 17. I'm going to back up because I want to. Let's go to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. There's a text. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. No wiggle room here. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. 
On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Just in case you're excited about that. If heaping burning coals on his head is exciting to you, you've missed the point. Which is why he says in verse 21, Do not be overcome by evil. Don't let that anger give the devil a foothold. But overcome evil with good. Remember the mercy I've received. Trust God to handle it perfectly. Trust God to handle it perfectly. I don't have to worry about justice being served. Justice will always be served. I may not see it. I may not understand it. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not happen in this life. We live in an unjust, fallen, broken, cursed world. But this world doesn't remain. And God does not let the wicked go unpunished. He will handle it. And He will handle it perfectly. You and I will always mess it up. Because our understanding is tainted by our own sinfulness. Putting on a life that fits. My last point under this. Prioritize my purpose over my pride or my passions. If I'm going to put on a life that fits, if I'm, going to, if I'm going to walk worthy of the calling I've received, if I'm going to wear the clothes of a child of the king, I need to remember the mercy that I've received so that I can then extend that mercy to others. I need to trust God to handle it perfectly so I don't seek revenge, I don't seek my own version of justice, but I let God do what God's going to do. And I need to prioritize my purpose over my pride or my passions. And when we're saying my purpose, I don't mean my will, but the purpose for which God created me. The purpose for which He saved me. To be a reflection of the reality of Christ. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. His hearers at that time recognized the cross not as a trinket or a decoration on the wall, but a clear sign and implication of death. Jesus is saying, deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow me. 2 Corinthians 5, 11-21, you can look it up for your homework, it's written down for you in your program. Paul says at that time, look, we used to think of people in human terms. We don't do that anymore. We used to think of Jesus according to the flesh. We don't do that anymore. But because we know what it means to fear God, we get it. We've seen God's wrath and we've embraced the good news of Jesus Christ. We've received grace. Because of that, our whole purpose is to tell others, to bring them from death to life, as if God is making His appeal through us, we are Christ's ambassadors because the one who knew no sin became sin for me, for you, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's my purpose, to be an ambassador. How high a priority is this, Paul said in Philippians, for me? 
I don't know what to do. I'm in prison. I could die. And there's a part of me that's so excited about that because if I die, I get to go home. But if I die, I don't get to stay here and work for you. For me, to live is Christ. Everything here that matters is Christ. And to die, that's not loss, that's gain. I get to be with Him. That's the reality that I've been waiting for. All the rest is prelude. I need to die to myself. I need to recognize that I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He continues a little later in Galatians 5.24. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He elaborates that on that in Romans 6 when he talks about being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I need to prioritize my purpose as an ambassador for Christ over my own pride, over my own passions, my own understanding. Let's wrap this up. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. It's our memory verse for the week. Get it in your mind. Get it in your heart. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Understand this. When I allow anger to distract me from my mission as an ambassador for Christ, I'm not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. I need to trust my heavenly Father to be the perfect judge. I need to let God be God. I can't allow my own personal sense of justice, which is inevitably tainted by my pride and my passions, to direct my thoughts and actions. I need to remember that letting anger drive puts the devil behind the wheel. Let's pray together. Father, create in us a clean heart. Renew a right, steadfast spirit within us. Protect us from the devil's schemes. He plays with our minds so well. And we can take the very best intentions and let them become a foothold for the devil when we hold on to our anger. When we are angry for human reasons. When our pride and our pain and our passions push us past our purpose. Lord, Remind us that our number one job, the reason we're on this planet, is to let people see you. To let others view eternity through your people. The only gospel they might ever hear, the only Bible they might ever read, might be the life they see in us. So help us to show them love, grace, mercy. And Father, help us to experience the peace that you want for us by forgiving, by setting the prisoner free, recognizing that we are ultimately that prisoner. 
these things we pray as we ask you to change us. In Jesus' name, amen.